0: Hello, my name is Ron Bowen and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I'd like to start by honouring the traditional owners of the unceded land on which this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Joe and I pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. For today's episode, we're speaking with Dave Charlton and Ranju Roy. Dave and Ranju have been practicing yoga since the mid-80s and have been teaching for over 20 years apiece. They teach numerous workshops and have written the book Embodying the Yoga Sutra, Support, Direction, Space. The book is written in a clear and concise style, which for me really emphasizes one of the major goals of yoga, to be able to see the world and ourselves with clarity. In this episode, we talk about Dave's background as an engineer and Ranju's background as an art therapist and how they combine their strengths and wealth of knowledge to teach these practices in an accessible, authentic and grounded way. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get into our conversation with Dave and Ranju. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, all the way over from the UK, or at least virtually. So perhaps we could start with you both introducing yourselves and telling us how you both discovered yoga and how you met. Well, we coincidentally met
1: at the same residential summer school when I think I was, I think I was 23 and maybe Dave was 22. I don't
2: know. Yeah, that's right. Um, We
1: were... I w- I was living in Bristol in the UK and I was doing a lot of Iyengar yoga. I'd never heard of Desikachar. Well, I I'd never done any yoga in the tradition of Desikachar and I saw a advert I saw an advert for a summer residential in 19 19- I think it was 86 or 87 I can't remember. For a summer residential with somebody called Paul Harvey who was Desikachar's only student in the UK at that time. And uh, I was just kind of intrigued. I knew that Desikachar was Ienga's nephew. So I'd been doing all this Iyengar yoga. So I just kind of rocked up there and met this very studious young man who was making lots of notes in his Light on Yoga book, I remember. (laughs) And uh, so I met Dave there. And and, yeah, I was very young. I was 23 and met Paul Harvey, both of our teachers for a long time, and and Dave there.
2: Yeah, and I I mean, I think... for me, I, I was studying at university in Bath, the city of Bath in, in the UK. And for some reason, I, I actually don't quite know why, I, I just decided that I'd like to do some yoga. And I, I just looked for a local yoga class. And it just happened to be Paul Harvey, who was the, the teacher that ranjiv was talking about. And so I just really fell into Paul's clutches purely by chance, really. And then went on that retreat and and met Ranju and we didn't we didn't say much to each other on that retreat did we? <laughs> As I remember, As I
1: remember no. <laughs> I remember going to the pub with Mike Young oh, yeah. halfway through, thinking, "What are we doing here? What are we doing?" Because <laughs> It was kind of strange. Everybody else was twenty five years older than us and uh, a woman. I mean, you know, middle aged women were mainly the were, you know there were these like three young guys, so it was kind of a bit unusual for us to to be. There really, but it really, it really was, uh, it really fired me up. I was, I was, it was, it was, it was great. It was great.
0: And, and I guess what, what was it about that experience that did really fire you up? For me, it was, I had been doing Iyengar yoga.
1: I basically started yoga. I mean, my grandfather, I'm half Indian, but I've been brought up in England. So my Indian grandfather was really keen on yoga. <laughs> Uh, I remember. I remember going to India in about 1983, 84, something like that, when I was about 20, and uh, I was sharing a bedroom with my Indian grandfather. <laughs> I remember, like the second day that I was in India, I, it, it was the first time I'd been in India since, you, you know, since I was very young, and uh, I was sharing a bedroom. I was sleeping on the floor, and I remember waking up at about four or five five o'clock in the morning. And kind of peering out of my sleeping bag and seeing my five foot one grandfather in shoulder stand at five thirty. I was thinking, What the hell? What's that about? You know, I was I was I thought, oh no, I've got to go back to sleep. So I went back to sleep. But he was he was very interested in yoga and was very interested in the philosophy. And one of the things about Paul's teaching for me was that and, and the approach By Jessica Charles, that it was very, very coherent, and it introduced philosophy in 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 a very practical manner. So it wasn't it wasn't like doing like gym and then philosophy, like two different different classes. The way that the philosophy was integrated into the physical work that we doing that we were doing, and the breath work was very, very coherent. I think.
2: Yeah, I'd echo a lot of that, actually, in the sense that there is something about the coherence of the whole system. And this was the first time, really, on on this retreat that I appreciated that, certainly within this approach, you can pretty much explain the reasons why... uh, you know why we're doing what we're doing it was kind of the first time where I really had an explanation for oh this is why you do this, this is how you structure the practice, this is the way that we would develop things, this is why you do this breathing, etc, et etc cetera, et cetera. and that that for me was compelling actually that that actually I had reasons and that there would seem to be a structure to what we were doing it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't random, you know, and that really appealed to me, I think
1: or because I told you.
3: Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is
1: what
2: we do.
3: And I believe that you're an engineer, actually, Dave, like a software engineer and trained as a mechanical engineer. And I know that Desikachar Desic- is famously also an engineer and a yoga teacher. <laughs> yeah. And it seems to be, um, there's actually quite a few other engineers that I've met who do yoga. Do you think there's something about that type of problem solving brain that has really led to this very logical, coherent structure of teaching?
2: Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I, I I think for Desikachar, in the way that he presented a number of the principles, and certainly the, the the kind of system of practice planning that we use, I think that a lot of that came out of his engineering background. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but I I, I think it did. And th- this whole business of of drawing the practices in terms of the the little stick people, you, you know, I'm sure you've seen the, these these drawings. These little line drawings. Well it's really Desikachar, I think, who, who first started doing that, and and I, I suspect that came from his engineering background also. So, so I, I think it's never been said explicitly, but I suspect it did have a, a big influence on the way that he presented things. Certainly.
3: And you're coming from a really different background, Andrew, because I believe that you're an art therapist, and. I'd kind of love to hear about how your creative side kind of is expressed through your yoga teaching and practice. And then flowing on from that, like how your two different brains work together to do what you do.
1: Well, I think one thing I'd say is that, you know, coming from an Indian, you know, my father is Indian. My father is an Indian engineer. So he actually reminded me of the about, engineer Jane is strong <laughs> in you as
3: well. <laughs>
1: you know, like all good Indian boys, my dad well, my you know, my dad basically wanted me to be a, an engineer or a doctor, or failing that a lawyer. An art therapist? What the hell is that? You know, I mean that didn't go down that you know, that took a bit of convincing. So I studied art, English literature and art. How does it link him with my dad has long since come to terms with my lack of <laughs> engineering But I do have, you know, I also have a kind of logic that you know, I have, I I'm, I'm I'm not completely logical if you like. So it was a, it was a similar kind of thing that attracted me. How does the creative well, I would say that although Desikachar's approach and the approach of this style of yoga or this approach to yoga is very logical and is very consistent and kind of rational and that's compelling but I think really importantly that's not all of it really that's not all of it and there is a huge aspect of yoga which is not understandable through formulae you can't you can't have a formula for silence do you know what I mean or or for that I'm going to put it in air quotes. You know that mystical aspect of yoga, and you know the okay. I'm good. here's a thing which comes to mind. The syllable Om, the syllable Om, is made up of ah, Those three sounds, and those three sounds ah, are said to be all that kind of that you can represent. That they're that you can talk about. They're the things that you can talk about. But always, the way we were taught was that always there's a silence after om. So when you say om, shanti, shanti, there's om, shanti, shanti. shanti." There's always a silence after om. And that silence is part of the actual om. It's part of the, the, the syllable. I hope this doesn't sound too pretentious, but the idea is that there's a mystical aspect. That silence represents what cannot be represented or talked about or described maybe there's something of you know the engineer really covers the oh may that no, I, I don't know whether you agree with that dave
0: i don't know i'm just
2: <laughs> i mean it's certainly true and, and and this was particularly true for for both of us in in the sense that we have spent a, a lot of time working with one of this students peter hirsnack and I think one of the things that Peter really did was to bring in the the whole idea of Bhavana, sort of creative visualization, if you like, a kind of meditation. And and I, I think I mean it was always there, but I think that he, he really opened the doors for us into that whole whole arena. And and that that arena takes us into the, the world of, of sort of imagery, imagination visualization creativity so along with the the rigor there is this other side which as Rangy sort of suggested it, it it's more the mystical side of of what we're we're doing rather than well after you do uttanasana we do this or you, you know it's it's much more it's a slightly more esoteric and it's the, the and it's the important bit in a way it, it is the important bit actually i think
1: I love the idea, you know, with bhavana. You know, one of the ideas of bhavana is that the the word literally means an instrument of becoming. It, it's a it's a focus or a, an image or a, an idea which enables you to inhabit a posture in a in a particular way. So you could have a bhavana of reaching up to the sun or a bhavana of being a warrior or whatever it is, you know, whatever image. But but I think that bhavana rather than it being a direct instruction to raise your arms and push your front knee forward or something like that. If you have a Bhavana, this, this poetic image, it it enables a kind of a creative response, an individual creative response that enables you to inhabit your yoga. Yeah. It enables you to embody your yoga in a, in a unique and creative way. I mean, I remember doing a, Doing a retreat with Dave, you know, we 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 did a retreat together twenty years ago. Probably we were teaching a retreat together. One of the Bhavanas that we, well, that Dave used was we were just sitting. We were all sitting at the end of a practice. And Dave said, "Imagine that you are already enlightened. That there is nothing left to do." That's a Bhavana. That was that's a creative invitation to play to explore in a particular way. And it's really powerful. I think it it really changes one's yoga practice from being primarily structural or uh, a little bit mechanical to engaging a creative aspect to our of, of ourselves.
0: Beautiful. And I guess it's relatively uncommon for um, two people to write together. So how does this partnership work? And and what do you what sort of advantages do you guys think it brings? I see. I see sort of. A little bit of laughter happening.
1: Many ways of answering that question. <laughs> well, you know, one thing, I, and I've thought about this a lot, is, is that I'm actually a twin. I'm a twin, so I have a twin brother. One of the things of having a twin brother, and you know, sharing a womb, and then sharing a room, and then being. You know, and having a, having our names which rhyme with each other, Runju and Sunju, you know, we, you know, the boys, the twins, that's how we were as we were growing up. And I think one of the things that arises from that experience is that we were always defined kind of both as together and in relationship to one another. So one of the one of us was sporty, one of us was not sporty, one of us was musical, one of, you know, there's this and there's this. So they kind of contrasted. And in a sense, we did a little bit of that even with the, you know, the engineer and the artist, that kind of thing. Cause I, cause it's not like I am some kind of, you know, post-impressionist diva going off doing art all the time. And Dave is Mr. Mechanic because they is very, very creative as well. So, but I, but I think I guess working together and, and knowing each other for so long, I do think of Dave as something of, of another one, another twin in a sense. And I think we work really creatively together. We have different strengths and I think work for the student, the experience of a student is that they I I, I have the idea that students have more of a binocular vision in as much as you get two perspectives. And I think those two perspectives are often very complementary, but slightly different. And in having two perspectives, I think you get a richer 3D image.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I smiled is because everybody asks us that question. Um, (laughs) and, um, I, I think it worked actually very well. I mean, I mean, we, we, we essentially, we divided the, the book up into chapters. So we did do, we did start out doing separate sections, but I think because we worked together for such a long time and we've done so many retreats and training courses together, we kind of know the sort of things we're going to say. It's not, it's not as if one of us is going to say something completely outrageous. That the other one's never heard before. I mean, it's highly unlikely that that's going to happen. <laughs> so, so we did kind of we did kind of divvy it up to begin with, and then we kind of, I suppose, together read through the bits that we that we'd each done, and it became a, an opportunity to really sort of cr- critique it, if you like, to change it a little bit, to ask the question, well, I don't, you know, what do you mean by that, or, or. In some cases, well, I don't see it like that. Mm. I think that worked really well, actually. Yeah. So I, I don't, I didn't think it was a particular problem. In fact, actually, it felt like quite a natural thing to do. But, but I think part of that was because we've done such a lot of things over the years together. W- would you agree with that, Randy? Exactly. Oh,
1: totally. Yeah, yeah. It's like having a great editor. You know, somebody who, in terms of the book, yeah, very much so. Very much so.
3: I definitely get a kind of egalitarian aspect to your teaching. Like I think you mentioned earlier that you're not the kind of teachers who tell people to believe something just because I say so. And I think it probably helps that there's two of you. So there's already different points of view and multiple perspectives. And just expanding on that further, like when I was researching for this episode, I listened to a couple of other podcasts. And one thing that really stood out to me as something to chew over in my own brain was a reference to Desi. Desikachar quoting Thich Nhat Hanh which is the quote that the next buddha will be the sangha would you like to elaborate on that idea a bit more
1: Desikachar in 1998 i think it was a group of 12 of us who were Paul Harvey's at that time most you know i'm going to again put it in air quotes senior students from the UK had done What was called a postgraduate diploma. So I think, I think 12 of us went to India at that time. And I remember when we were getting our certificates at the end of two weeks in, in Madras, as it was called then, Deskachar quoted Titnathan in, with, uh, with those lines, the the future Buddha is a Sangha. My feeling at that time was that Deskachar was, this is conjecture. But my feeling is that Deskachar was concerned that the too much power in any one individual causes problems. And we've seen in our you know, in, in Deska's tradition as well as in, in as well as in many other traditions, problems that have occurred where a single teacher has well, I don't know, you know what I'm gonna say, you know, it's about abusing their position, abusing their power, et cetera, et cetera. And I think even in 1998, there had already been problems, and of course, those problems have multiplied or or have been exposed more in the last twenty twenty years. And I think that Desikachar felt that there was. He, I remember him saying something like the 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 era of the single the single great person is over, something along those lines. And perhaps there was an invitation to. Work more creatively together as groups which would have the effect of ameliorating any tendency for one person to kind of grow too big for their boots or to to become too too to have too much power centered on them. I think that's what he was talking to i I don't know the context of Ticknat hun saying that I, I but I do remember very clearly Deskachar saying that, and I do think that was what was I think he was troubled by the amount of power that certain individuals had within the yoga community and he wanted to develop groups of people. In fact, Dave and mm-hmm. I working together, we call it sadhana mala. And the idea is that sadhana practice, but mala is a garland. And there was something about just having a, a community, you know, a community feeling, a garland, and not having all the power centered in one person or one figure. I don't know what you want to say, Dave, do you?
2: Well, I, I'd just like to say, I, I think another thing for us was that, but I'm perhaps putting words into your mouth here, Angie, but most of us would see it, both of us would see ourselves as being fairly normal sort of <laughs> people. With, with.
3: You're not seeing yourself as the next Buddha?
2: <laughs> no, we with the normal range of, you know, humans' flaws and defects. And, and certainly for me, I, I, I don't... I, I wouldn't feel happy to be in a situation of putting myself on some kind of pedestal, you know, to to pretend that I've somehow got everything sorted out because I definitely haven't. I mean, I think it's a delicate one because I think as a yoga teacher, you, you do have to be prepared to, to, you know, assuming that you've got some good experience and understanding, you do have to be prepared to say, you know, this is how I think it is. And, I was going to say, sometimes you have to say no. That's not that's not right. You know, th- this isn't the way that that I understand the yoga tradition. So I think there we are there are times there are times as a yoga teacher where you have to be prepared to 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 stand up and
1: assume authority.
2: Yeah, yeah, indeed. It, 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 but on a very human level, I I kind of feel we're we're pretty ordinary, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in that from that point of view, I I wouldn't feel that comfortable with. With taking on uh, too elevated, uh...
1: but there is a little, there is a little kind of dilemma there. I think as a fine line to walk because if we're just if if we're just completely normal, if we're just you know, yeah. well, well, why would anybody come and study? Do, do you know what I mean? There's that. There's that fine line between. Okay, we have done some stuff, and we, but but we're not setting ourselves up as any any kind of guru thing. Yeah, and I think working together. It's a little sangha in a sense. It's a little sangha. It's a little community.
2: It, it does. Ha- it's very helpful, I think, when you're when you're teaching and particularly handling groups of people. And inevitably, you know, within a groups of people, there'll be people who are perhaps a little bit more difficult or a little bit more difficult for us as individuals. And so, it's very helpful to have at least one other person as a sounding board. I mean, I think it's it's kept t- doing certainly the 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 training courses i think it's kept us sane to have somebody else to kind of sound things you know as a sounding board and also to 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 sort of discuss things with and so, i think that's been very helpful actually
3: before we go on i just wanted to remind you that you can use our discount code macflow at markaloo.com to get 10 percent off you'll support the podcast and a great sustainable australian company The Markaloo is a set of nesting domes on a wooden base that you can use for self-massage, stability and proprioceptive awareness. It's such a great portable and accessible tool that really opens up new movement possibilities and it's a great addition to chair yoga, adding stability challenges to a floor-based practice or for anyone who loves self-massage. The shape of the Markaloo domes are actually designed to be helpful and comfortable to hold for people working with arthritis or peripheral neuropathy, and their nesting nature allows you to gradually increase load. Check out our link in the show notes for all our Markaloo resources, including some free video classes. And I think what you're saying as well of the dual sense of having that little bit more responsibility, but also knowing that we're all just people is really true because everyone else is paying to be there and you are being paid to be there and everyone else is really only responsible for their own well-being and their own safety. But as the teacher, you have that extra responsibility for the whole group, like everyone's well-being, everyone's safety and as well... Everybody getting something from your training and feeling yeah, like it's helpful yeah. and beneficial, and I don't think that is necessarily putting yourself on a pedestal. It's just kind of acknowledging that there is a power differential in this relationship, and part of that is like for everyone's benefit, really.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think as a you know, as I think as a yoga teacher or a trainer, you have to accept that you know and have to be prepared to embody that for sure.
3: And like, like what you're saying, if there's like a bit of a challenging, difficult person in the group, you have a responsibility for that person so that they got what they need from the training, but also to everyone else there so that their experience isn't derailed by this one particular person.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And to acknowledge that, you know, often when we find people difficult, it often says as much about us as it does about them and, and that actually other people. Perhaps co-teachers are e- find it easier to deal with those people. Yeah, I, I think the whole the whole business of, of handling a group, being a teacher, it's it's a big thing actually, and I and I think it's difficult to get the balance right. I think it is a thin, you know, there's a line to walk, as as Renji said, that's a little delicate at times.
3: And actually, it kind of brings to mind the title of your book, which is Embodying the Yoga Sutras and Support Direction and Space, because that sounds like what we're talking about here, supporting people, kind of guiding the direction, the flow of thought, and also giving people their own individual space within that. But I know, actually, that's not what that title is based on. It's based on the Gunas. And I'd love to hear your explanation of it.
1: Well, it's just the master key. It's the master key for everything. Those three words put together I mean, you've used them in a particular context, and it completely works. So many people who don't know very much about yoga, when you say you're a yoga teacher, when you talk about yoga, or why they can't do yoga, the whole emphasis is on flexibility, isn't it? They say, "Oh, I can't do yoga because I'm stiff," or "Oh, you must be really flexible," that sort of thing. And I think one of the really important messages that we try to get across in our teaching is that before flexibility. You just need stability. So this word about psychological stability, physical stability, emotional stability—these are the these are the kind of qualities that we are aiming to cultivate through our practice of yoga. And I think we we, we could say that having done a practice of yoga, most of the time you feel a little more centered, a bit more stable. So this stability links to the Sanskrit word sthira, which we we sthira and suka asana qualities of arsenal, stability and ease but this quality of stability has something to do with support so how how do we cultivate support how do we engage with our support what supports do we have available etc etc at a physical level at an emotional level at all sorts of levels and it's only through engaging coherent uh, it, it's only through engaging creatively and authentically with a support that a good direction gets revealed i think that's re- that's such a that's that's worth considering that's worth thinking about a lot i mean sometimes i if you're standing on two skateboards it's really difficult to get a direction if you're taking support on two skateboards if you have a creative relationship with one skateboard and you can engage with that one skateboard a good di- direction can reveal itself Dave,
2: do, do... Yeah, I was just thinking, yeah, you push off, don't you? You push off? With the the one foot, you use the support of the earth or the ground to push you off and, and away you go. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think the first thing to say perhaps is that this formulation support direction space is, is not ours. Again, it, it came from Peter Hirsnack, who, as I say, was one of Jessica Charles' long-time students who sadly passed away a few years ago. But one of the things that Peter said was that he felt he had a kind of eureka moment you know like when the apple falls on and he his view which I, I increasingly start to appreciate is that this idea of taking support in order to find a direction and to create a more spacious experience is something that he realized or he felt was an essential principle that applies to pretty much all of the practices of yoga, whether it be asana, pranayama or meditation, but also in the way that we understand and view the world, perceive if, the, you know, in terms of accurate perception, in terms of how we conduct our relationships. And so it, it does seem to be a principle that you can apply very, very generally, actually. It takes a little bit of decoding. I, I We do appreciate that the words support direction support and direction they're not the most immediately understandable words you know or phrases it, it's like they they have a certain sense and you have to chew on them for a while i remember the first time we encountered them via peter we were all you know many of us there who, who went on that particular retreat where we first first met peter we've been doing yoga a long time and he started using all this terminology such as support direction we were kind of Scratching our heads, but actually, the more you chew on it, the more you begin to appreciate what's meant by it and how that how widely it can be applied.
1: Yes, yeah, support isn't just about being nice to each other. It's only
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> Be supportive. No, no, that's right. It's not. And I and I think actually to understand the practice of yoga as taking support is actually which is one of the things that we we, we discuss in the book is an incredibly useful way to understand what the practice of yoga is about. you know. And again, if you're listening to this for the first time, what, what, you know, what does taking support mean? You might be thinking, well, it sounds a little bit an awkward phrase, but again, if you start to really unpick it and you go into it and you start to, to meditate on it, I suppose, you begin to appreciate that it's such a good description of the yoga process, which is essentially a process where we in. We choose something to engage with. And through that engagement, we get something back. Something is something is opened up in us, if you like. And I think that is basically the essence of what the yoga method is. You know, we pick all sorts of different techniques, methods, but they all involve essentially in engaging with something, giving ourselves to something, whether it be a breathing practice or meditation practice, and allowing it to really touch us. That's the idea of taking support.
1: Opening up to what is coming back, that's really important as well. Yeah, yeah,
3: And I'm really enjoying where you're going with this. And to cycle back to something that you mentioned a little bit before, a big part of our yoga practice as well is to clear the lens. And I love that you open with this as the ultimate yoga sutra shortcut in your book. And I'm just going to quote you quickly. So the purpose of yoga is to clear the lens so that we encounter the world fully in the present, just as it is without distraction or distortion. We could somewhat creatively say that the whole of the yoga project is encapsulated in this very first word of the Yoga Sutra, Atha, being completely present and aware of what is. And I remember this from my yoga teacher training. And I had a bit of a think about that because that was almost 20 years ago. And I still feel like. I only really see the distortions when I've moved past them. So when you kind of have that realization of like, oh, that's what happened there. I'd love to know your thoughts about getting more present so that we can see those distortions in the present moment and make better decisions. And how about when we notice them and then we still continue in that habitual pattern anyway? Have you got any thoughts around that process?
1: I think the the first thing is to take some time. There's, you know, the exhal the power of the exhalation is uh, really important. I think because the way that we've worked with yoga is very breath oriented, and I think the inhale and the exhale have different. They evoke different things, and for me, the exhalation is about coming back to the center. It's not about getting rid of stuff it's about coming back to my center and then the inhalation is about opening up to the possibilities so every single exhalation has the potential to draw back well actually to clear the let actually to clear the lens to some extent so the first thing is exhale exhale slowly and just take some time just take some time don't i think that does good things to the nervous system good things to the nervous system and and therefore the mind so exhaling is a good place to start to come into the present you know a a lot of the a lot of times i was thinking that the the way we punctuate inhales and exhales is really really significant because if you think of a a single breath as inhale get stuff in and then exhale let it go that's very different from thinking about exhale return to yourself find support you know exhale is about bringing you back to your support about creating firmness in the abdomen and kind of just clearing the way and then that leads you to an experience of opening on the inhale so if you think about exhale first and then inhale rather than inhale first and then compensate with the exhale it's a very different experience so I don't know whether that makes any sense. But so in in terms of coming into the present, exhale
2: first. Yeah, I think
3: think just taking that moment to respond rather than to react and just taking that beat can be really powerful. Yeah, I think
2: it's very, I mean, that's a very deep question, actually, that you're asked in terms of observing, you know, beginning to observe our our patterns, but then asking the question, why do we continue to, to carry on? in the same in the same manner and and I think that that's a very tricky issue because we need to appreciate that from the yoga point of view at least uh, it acknowledges that we have these patterns within us we call them samskara which are activated repeatedly and if we're not careful become almost like automatic behaviors and I suppose I'm going to take a slightly different tact around you actually is, is that I'll come back to the Yoga Sutra and the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra, which is really the, the chapter which has got all of the, the very practical stuff in, you, you might say, begins with the word tapas. And I think I think tapas is an incredibly important idea in, in our practice. Whenever I, I talk about this, I always feel a little bit kind of guilty because I'm, I'm not the most disciplined of people <laughs> by uh, habitually, put it that way, by nature. But the idea of tapas really is about observing certain boundaries and actually being prepared to either do something on a regular basis or indeed not do something on a regular basis, even when it goes against your natural inclination. So it's like you're prepared to sort of set up a boundary and then stay with it. It's an example of a support, actually. You know, we put a support in place, which is like a boundary, and then we we stick with it. And I think this is a really important principle in yoga. I don't think always people appreciate that that part of the practice of yoga really involves being prepared to not necessarily do what you most naturally feel like doing. And 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 you know I see this in all sorts of different contexts. Even in just a regular class, when you when you see people, for example, standing at the beginning of the class, you know part of the idea is to stand without being tense, but just you know just to be still. It's not naturally and it's not our natural inclination. And you see students they're all fidgeting and looking around and all the rest of it. And and actually, part of the practice is to say, no, I'm going to be still. Even though my body wants to fidget and move, and it's a fine line, obviously, because we're not seeking to be tense and and awkward about that. But actually, there's something about, can I allow myself to be still, even if there is that inclination to do do otherwise? And I think that principle is really important within the context that you're talking about. You know, there are certain habits and behaviors that once we've identified them, you have to kind of be say, no, I'm not going to do that. And have the awareness to catch it when so. do,
1: you, do you know what this, this reminds me and it, it reminds me of something that Paul said years and years ago and it, it's, it's, it's interesting because of the title of your podcast that it's kind of going with the flow and it's you know and the, the edged sword of going with the flow because at times I think going with the flow is absolutely the right thing to do and at other times you've got to go against the flow you've got to go upstream and you've got to resist your natural tendencies and to have the have the discrimination to know is this a good thing for me to be doing or is this just my own patterns acting out in particular ways which are not necessarily helpful so understanding how to navigate the flow if you i remember paul saying sometimes if you go with the flow you end up in the in the doldrums or whatever you know you get stuck in your own patterns if you just go with the flow so sometimes you have to resist the flow but at other times, you've absolutely got to go with the flow, but navigating those currents is, uh, it requires discrimination and discernment, I should say.
3: And I think as well, just with the whole idea of the flow stage, like you need that tapas and that discipline to do something that is slightly a bit too challenging and practice it lots of times to hit that sweet spot where you are really in the flow with it.
2: 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
3: So, another one that's been um, on my mind since yoga school, <laughs> and it was a concept that didn't really sit with me then. So, I'd love your thoughts now. And it's Isvara Pranitana. And the translation I remember from my teacher training was surrender to the divine, or like a more secular take being unattached to the outcome of a particular action. Would you like to share your interpretation? And also, please correct my Sanskrit pronunciation of that term. <laughs>
1: ishwara Pranidhana. ishwara Pranidhana. I think you we can think about Ishwara Pranidhana, the term comes up really three times or in three parts of the Yoga Sutra. It comes up as part of Kriya Yoga, right at the beginning of chapter two. Then it comes up later on in chapter two of the Yoga Sutras as part of the Niyama. And then it comes in chapter one, where it's uh, quite a lot. I'm, I'm in the middle of a, a more A chunk of sutras which talks about Ishvara. So how that Ishvara Pranidhana is presented and how we can understand them can be thought of in three different ways, really. So it's made up of two words, Ishvara and Pranidhana. Ishvara is like the highest principle. I mean, in a feudal, in a feudal context, Ishvara is the Lord, is the feudal Lord. It's the kind of top bod. Now that's translated as God often, and it is often Maheshvara is a is another name for one of the gods. is a name for Shiva, and Ishvara is often talked about as as de- a deity or something. But if you think about it as the highest principle, it doesn't link it to a theistic. It doesn't necessarily link it to a theistic interpretation. And pranidhana evokes something of. A laying down or a surrendering or a, not a subjugation, but what would you say, David? A, 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 an opening to, an opening to, yeah, an opening to, to the highest principle. Deskachar, I think, translated Ishwara Pranidhana as, as acknowledging that we're not necessarily the masters of our own lives. So uh, the masters of our own destiny, you know, things happen that we could do what we can do. And then something happens and you think, well, that's not what I wasn't planning on that, and the ability to kind of accept that and open to that is one form of Ishvara Pranidhana. But it can go all the way from kind of cultivating something of the attitude of Pranidhana to life, the attitude of opening to life, to to whatever the circumstances are. It can go at one end of the spectrum. We can think of Ishvara Pranidhana like that, and at the other end of the spectrum, it can be a real full-on devotional practice which is theistic. so how do you interpret Ishvara Pranidhana is uh you know there's a broad
2: spectrum I would say hmm. I think the term Pranidhana is really important it, it, it in a way it's that attitude hmm. of trusting of opening up to something to appreciate that we're we're not the boss I remember there was one particular retreat that uh, Disco repeatedly would ask the question what would it would, would, in connection with this idea of Ishvara Pradana, it's it, he would say, it's about appreciating we're not the boss, he said. He used to say that. That was his, that was an expression he used. So I, I, I think from that point of view, I think it's, it's, that's the attitude that's important. And again, it's taking support. It's just taking the ultimate support. <laughs> if you like the support on life or itself or on the divine or on, However, you want to understand that. I, I was just a bit curious when you when you asked the question, you said one of the things that you were I can't remember exactly what, what you said, Joe, but one of the things from your teacher training that you weren't.
3: Yeah, I can unpack that a bit more for you. There were some things yeah. like say the lens through which you see the world that I automatically was like, yes, I'm gonna keep working yeah. with this. This is really gonna help me understand the world, understand myself and Maybe because the particular lecturer who was taking us through the Ishvara Pranatana section was very devotional and very bhakti, and I kind of I get the idea from the Bhagavad Gita to like do things to do your best. Don't necessarily just do things because you want something in return, and your life will ultimately be unsatisfying if you're only doing something for a reward versus a way to create a more meaningful life could be to just do your best and to do what, you know, feels right in your heart. But the idea of doing something and then surrendering it didn't feel helpful to me because I Mm. feel like doing something to be immersed in the process or doing something because it feels meaningful was more resonant to me and it felt more helpful for me. So that one and also Brahmacharya were two of the yoga sutra concepts that I was just like, well, I'm just going to file those away for later and work with the ones that are really um, <laughs> feeling helpful for me right now.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it's quite common, actually, to 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 think when you first meet it and particularly Dare I say, when we we're a little bit younger, that the, the idea of Ishvara Pranidhana doesn't necessarily, how can I put it, stand out. And and but I, I remember Desikachar said he felt that if if you practiced sincerely over a long period of time, he said Ishvara Pranidhana is an inevitable consequence. I, I've probably changed his words slightly. I think he actually used the term bhakti, but I, I've kind of slotted in Ishvara Pranidhana. And I, I kind of do, for, I, I kind of do wonder whether it's something that actually grows in us. And I don't know how you might relate to that concept now, as you know, mm-hmm. compared to where you were, say, 20 years ago. I, I mean, I know certainly, I suppose perhaps I'm projecting a bit of my own story here, but I, I feel this concept has more of a life or has more meaning for me as I've got a little bit older. And actually you begin to realise that, you know, our, our part in the grand scheme of things isn't perhaps quite so great as we might have thought when we were 25. There are a couple,
1: I agree with that, Dave, but there are also a couple of other things that really struck me in that conversation, in that, in that discussion. One was the way you translate Sanskrit words is really, really important. So when if, yeah. you're, being tra- if you're being told this means devotion to God, yeah. I mean, or surrender to God. They're very heavy English words, which evoke certain responses. That's not Ishvara Pranidhana. I mean, that's because Ishvara Pranidhana is Ishvara Pranidhana. Devotion to God or surrender to God is surrender. They're different words. Yeah. They evoke different responses within us. So that was the first thing. And Brahmacharya equals celibacy well celibacy equals it, you know it evokes certain words it's, brahmacharya does not mean celibacy you know if you unpack the literal meaning of the words that's not what it means what it what words come like snowballs they kind of pick up stuff and they you know that and, and that means that we're really seeing a lot of stuff rather than the word itself. So that's the first thing to say. And the second thing to say, just to pick up on some stuff that Dave was talking about there, uh, about how you might grow into Ishwara Pranidana. And, and whilst, whilst Dave was talk, whilst you were talking, I, I was thinking about things like gratitude, the idea of gratitude, and the idea of, you know, Dave said taking support. I, I, I was thinking about like taking support on reality. Like this is how it is. And I'm going to accept that. And I'm not going to, it's not about becoming passive in relation or, you know, or passive or, or, or resigned to how things are. But it is about accepting how things are and even maybe cultivating some gratitude for that maybe and then seeing what kind of space and potential that opens up for you. And I know that there are many things in life which we might not be, grateful for, or we might find it difficult to accept. But I think the first part of engaging with them is some kind of creative acceptance of the reality. And maybe there's a flavor. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that that's what Ishwara Pranidhana is. I'm not even saying that that's what Patanjali said it is. But in terms of understanding Ishwara Pranidhana as a concept for now, perhaps that's a creative way of thinking about it, of cultivating acceptance and gratitude to how things are and i think we talked about in in the book we used a phrase of peter's which was trust in life Mm. and really in order to trust something in order to take support on something you need to trust it you need to trust that it's not going to fall apart if you lean on it Mm. or that it's going to carry you and you've got to trust it sufficiently that you're open to what it gives back and i think trust in life again it's a a phrase which needs a little bit of unpacking, but it absolutely leads to the concept of support and a creative response to life and life's ups and downs. Does that make
2: sense?
3: Definitely. And it seems very in tune with the phrase itself. It's like, there's not a clear definitive answer here and you can't go reaching for it too hard. You just have to like be open to it to reveal itself over time.
0: But one of those times where you, you kind of have to go with the flow, I guess. <laughs>
3: and take a breath. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's very true,
0: actually. Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: And so while we're on the theme of my unfinished, my unanswered questions from yoga teacher training, <laughs> can we dig a bit more into brahmacharya because I absolutely got the sense that it was celibacy and also a bit of not being too into the sensual pleasures of life in general.
2: Okay, I I think I think you know if you look up brahmacharya in popular Sanskrit dictionary, you will get that meaning. I mean, I, I mean, it is a common meaning for brahmacharya. But but really, as Randy suggested, if you really unpick the word, it means something like moving within or moving towards brahma, so the, the absolute. So within the context of brahmacharya, the, the stage of life of brahmacharya, which really was the the, the the stage of studentship, then the the idea was to stay focused on that which was most important, and in the traditional Vedic world, it, as it were, then what's most important within the, the the time of Brahmacharya is to focus on one's studies and one's understanding of principles of, of the Veda, the principles of Yoga, for example. So it is it was a, it's really about maintaining one's focus? So we we often translate Brahmacharya as maintaining your priorities because that's actually what it is. It, it's about it's about directing and channeling your energy and vitality. And in that sense, we can think about Brahmacharya as 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 being about staying focused, if you like, not dissipating your energy unwisely. And that takes it out of it. Makes it much more general. Is not is not necessarily. It's about celibacy or sexuality. It's it's about acknowledging that actually, as human beings, we have a certain vitality and energy that we can bring to things, and it's very easy for us to dissipate it, and to become distracted. And 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 for me, I think that's that's essentially what Brahmacharya means. It also acknowledges that our sexual energy and our sexual desires are very very strong forces within us.
1: There's an intimate link between semen breathing and mental stuff you know within the yoga literature and there's a lot of emphasis on containment so i think within certain within certain strands of yoga there's a there's an emphasis on containing the breath and holding the breath in the same way there's a lot of emphasis on containing semen and and, and you know and not dissipating it as Dave was saying And Jitta Vritti Niroda, containing our mind, containing our thoughts. So, those three things are quite intimately linked, particularly in tantric perspectives. So, Brahmacharya linking to celibacy is, you know, kind of has flavors of holding the breath in, like Kumbhaka, you know, holding things in, not letting. uh, But if we were, Dave Dave said it links to this idea of moving towards Brahma. Brahmacharya, the Charya part of that links to the english word chariots so it's kind of move brahma chariot moving to the highest principle and in order to move to the highest principle you don't want to be leaking if you kind of (laughs) leaking your energies or your thoughts or your sexual you know whatever so it's about containing so i i kind of we we use this term maintain we think about it as maintaining our boundaries or Maintain maintaining our priorities, not getting distracted. That's the way. Yeah, I
2: brought my I mean, I I, have, I was thinking about one particular student who who would get lost in their work, and it would take them over. It was a very creative, they engaged in a very creative sort of occupation, and they would get completely lost in it and in in this work to the to the extent that it it kind of dominated dominated everything and then it started to deplete them and then they become exhausted Mm -hmm. and then they'd have to stop and then the same thing would happen again it would be a pattern well in a way the way i would see that i I would see that's that's an issue of brahmacharya because it's not actually keeping one's boundaries about so sex is an
1: example of that isn't it It's 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 an example of that or a subset of that wider
2: yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's kind of much more practical. So I, I don't know whether that helps. That, that That's kind of some of the way that I would understand Ramacharya.
3: And I think one of the things that was losing me at the time, which kind of resurfaced in your explanation, it seems kind of like a male-centric view. Like we're talking about semen, we're talking about aiming our chariot. And I kind of felt like there was maybe a bit of patriarchy in the texts that I was reading and a bit of control and a bit of women are just going to distract you from your spiritual path and kind of (laughs) cutting out a big section of the population who are human beings in their own right. So I think there was a bit of buttons getting pushed in my brain with that one.
1: (laughs) Well, whether or not the origin, you know, whether or not the originators of these expressions and terms and ideas felt that or not i mean we just don't know i mean probably they did let's face it but whether they did or not who knows but certainly the history of yoga has been dominated by uh a lot of musk you know uh, there are lots of texts which say basically that women are distractions women gold food sex golden food you know all that it's all distraction get over it and there's also this idea that, um, you know, Purusha and Prakriti, there can be this idea that Purusha is basically masculine, Prakriti is feminine. So, which is, which is a, which is a polarity and, and, and that's fine. But it can be interpreted that, you know, we, it's all about Purusha. We want to be all about Purusha and Prakriti is full of all the nasty, horrible, squidgy, horrible, dirty stuff which we want to transcend. So I think there can be a kind of an implicit misogyny in that understanding and I think we'd like to stand up for prakriti.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't get away from the fact that some of the expressions in the text and the commentaries in particular, that they're not very helpful from a modern perspective. <laughs> I think you just got to read them and see them a product of their time, unfortunately, and try and look for the you know, the universal message. Or the, 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 Yeah, they need a bit of cultural translation for sure. I mean.
3: And fully acknowledging as well that it may not be the original text, it is the translation and the translator's perspective shaping the interpretation of the text rather than what maybe the original message was.
1: Yeah, I mean, we just don't know what the original message was. No, It's difficult to unpack the mind of Patanjali, but we could say that this is what he wrote. This is how we might understand it from what we understand of his perspective. And this is how it would be good to... This is how we understand it now. This is how it can be applied now. Yeah. And I think an understanding of Sanskrit and the the way the Sanskrit words work is helpful for that.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think it is helpful. And it, again, it's 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 quite a tricky business to approach these traditional texts I think because one of the things that you notice well I've certainly noticed with training courses that is that students often have an idea of what they would like yoga and spirituality to be about and then they they look at the text and they try and interpret the text so that essentially it fits their idea of what they think it should be <laughs> and often it isn't that you know and so sometimes uh, uh, again I think we've got to be clear that the, the, there's what I believe. There's what the texts appear to be saying, and they don't always necessarily marry up. But this is the teaching that's given, let's say, in the Yoga Sutra, and then you have to marry up that up with the the fact that, that these texts were written some couple of thousand years ago and it was a particular context and that context isn't necessarily very helpful for today attitudes then were very different and so then you've got to do a bit of also cultural translation and and it's tricky because we've got to reflect what they say and yet we need to do a little bit of translation and we don't want to mix it up with what our, our notions of what yoga should be about because often they're very different particularly when people come to yoga for the for the first time, or they're fairly fairly new. They have certain ideas that yoga should be about this. It should say this kind of thing. It should reinforce my ideas of, of what the what the world is like and what it should be like. And it's not always quite like that. So I think it's the whole translation thing, the study thing is is actually a very tricky, and it's another tricky line to to negotiate. I'm afraid. <laughs>
3: And I do appreciate in your book as well, you really unpack the translation. And often you'll kind of give a few different words that this word could be translated into. And sometimes you will kind of make references to previous translations and how you've reinterpreted that. Like one that really stood out to me was yoga meaning yoke rather than union. Because those two things are actually quite different.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Beautiful. I
3: guess we've
0: got one more question, uh, one we ask at the end of every episode. And our question is, if you could distill everything that you've learnt and everything that you teach down to one core essence, what do you think that one thing would be?
3: <sighs> Take a breath. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the first thing that came to mind was Atta, actually, for me, which was... Is the first word of the Yoga Sutra. It's the first word of the Yoga Sutra. And it evokes, you know, Eckhart Tolle famously wrote the power of now. Atta is now, in a sense, So it's the power of Atta. I'm sure I could think of other... I, I, you, that's, what, that's what comes to mind immediately. I don't know what they...
2: Well, the the word that comes to, uh, to mind to me is vairagya, mm-hmm. which essentially means, I mean, it's often translated as detachment, but actually that's not kind of the way that we tend to understand it we 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 understand it more in terms of openness actually and an ability to to be to be open to things as they are and again I, I increasingly I, I feel this is an important yeah I think this is the most important thing for me
0: beautiful well thank you both so much for speaking with us and sharing some really interesting discussions that I've, I've definitely taken a lot from
3: yeah that was great thank you for thank you. Um, <laughs> dealing with my unanswered questions and
0: um those are great questions i have to say i think your
2: questions have been great yeah. today
3: yeah. oh yeah. i'm glad you appreciated them thank you so much yeah thank you
0: i really got a lot out of our conversation with dave and ranju and i can heartily recommend their book If you'd like to learn more from Dave and Ranju, they're offering a workshop series based on the book Embodying the Yoga Sutra. They'll be running as two series of four Zoom workshops starting on the 1st of November 2022 from 5 to 7 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. There's also a free introductory session on the 20th of September at 7 p.m. For more information, go to sadhanamalayogatraining.com and we'll include a link in our show notes to everything we've spoken about on our website, podcast.flowartist.com. You can also leave a comment there if you like. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram at yoga and Joe at Garden of Yoga. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Check out gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. He aroha nui māua kia katoa. Big, big love.